Welcome to the WSU Wheat Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Lyon, and I want to thank you for joining me as we explore the world of small grains production and research at Washington State University. In each episode, I speak with researchers from WSU and the USDA ARS to provide you with insights into the latest research on wheat and barley production. If you enjoy the WSU Wheat Beat podcast, do us a favor and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. And leave us a review while you're there so others can find the show too. My guest today is Aaron Esser. Aaron has been with WSU Lincoln Adams Area Extension for 23 years, mostly concentrated on dryland cropping systems and conservation tillage. His research and extension program has focused on wireworm management and cropping systems since 2008. His work with wireworms has covered the biology and distribution of this pest, as well as cultural and chemical control of this pest. Hello, Aaron. Hey, hello, Drew. How are you? Doing well. So, so you've spent a, a large portion of your program over the last decade or so uh, focused on wireworms, which uh, is the larval stage of the click beetle. Can you tell us tell us a little bit about how you got started on this project? Yeah, um, yeah. First of all, I want to reiterate, and I think I've everyone who's ever heard me talk about, regarding wireworms is that I'm not an ent- entomologist, and my passion for entomology is pr- um, pretty limited. But a group of growers came to me around two thousand, or came to me early in two thousand eight, maybe late two thousand seven, and asked me if I could work on an issue because Linden was removed from the marketplace starting in two thousand and six, and they wanted me to know if I could work with uh, a pest that seemed to be giving them some issues, and it was wireworms. So um, we sat down with a couple of growers, and um, it all went from there. Okay, and, um, and lindane was a chemical they had been using up to that point for yeah, successful it, wildworm control? It was one that was successful for, I think, close to like 30 years. Um, okay. So it had a good run. It went away. It had it had some issues. Um, it, and that left a product called Neonix for, on the marketplace for growers to use. And you know, lindane had some residuals in the soil and stuff. And with those residuals... Um, you know, neonics seem to be um, producing pretty good results, but once you started seeing some of the lending um, get out of the out of the soil and stuff, the neonics really started to fall down a little bit. Two studies I did early on that growers um, wanted me to look at was a study looking at gaucho at two ounces versus the check, and uh, you know, two ounces at that time was like wow. That's way above anything any farmer had ever tried with the with these neonics and stuff. And I remember when I was given the first field day with it, we're up on a hill overlooking the trial and stuff. And I said, yeah, we're using two ounces of neonics. And one of the farmers made one of his cracks. He goes, you can't afford two ounces of neonic. And I looked at him and then I looked at the trial and I looked back at him and I said, I'm not sure you can afford not to. Um, just looking at the results. And that was kind of the start of it. Along with the trial, um, I did where we put on zero, a quarter ounce, half ounce, and one ounce of cruiser. And at that time, that quarter ounce of cruiser was the heavy wireworm rate. And, you know, we put that trial in and we were seeing significant damage with one ounce of cruiser, which was probably the most, um, the one of the early breakthroughs that we had because at that time, a lot of farmers were getting upset because they were putting on the heavy wireworm rate of 
1.25 ounces of cruiser, and they were still having significantly wire, significant wireworm damage. So there was a lot of finger pointing in the industry, saying, I paid for it, you didn't put it on. And there were actually growers who switched seed dealers because of it. Um, so that was one of the big breakthroughs with that trial. And early on, um, Keith Pike was really instrumental in helping me get started with the program. Um, he was an ent entomologist with WSU, has since retired, but he was really instrumental along with them, Lincoln Adams Wheat Growers Association and Crop Improvement. They helped do a lot of the early funding. And the education early on was mostly focused on identifying the pest, identifying the damage of the pest, and figuring out ways for farmers to scout this pest. Okay. You, you mentioned uh, one of the things you consider to be a breakthrough uh with the work you did, uh, are there any other key breakthroughs you've had? Well, that early work and that, the trial where we had the zero, the quarter ounce, half ounce, and one ounce really led to some one of the major breakthroughs because we had that at two locations, Drew. And it was really interesting because they said neonics don't reduce wireworm populations. And at one location up in the Wilbur area, we actually had a significant decrease in our wireworm population. Um, where we did the increasing rates of neonic. At the location that we had just south of Davenport, um, we actually had no significant difference in our wireworm population, not a bit of difference amongst all, all those treatments. And as a scientist, you know, I'm sitting here going, oh, how can I explain this? Is it bad research? What's going on? Um, you know, you know, just starting to question every every move I made. And then we sent some species, some um, wireworms off to Montana State who did a DNA analysis on them. And lo and behold, at the location at Wilbur, we had a species of Californicus infuscatus, or we had infuscatus up there. And at, um, at Davenport, we had Californicus. Ammonius californicus. So instantly it was one of those aha moments. We're dealing with two different species. And then that led into some work. We brought in I, David Crowder came on onto the program to kind of replace Keith Pike when he was retiring. We brought in our graduate student, Ivan, um, Ivan M. And then the Grain Commission got involved and put some additional, a lot of additional funding behind it. And we got some USDA NIFA funding. And then we started going after looking at the detail of this pest. And Ivan did some great work um, focused on the distribution of wireworms across the area. Um, you know, overall, I think there was 17 different species, but three of them really were um, stuck out as dominant pests that we have um, in eastern Washington and northern Idaho and, and part of Oregon as well. And so these three pests, and then we started looking, taking a closer look at them, and they have completely different feeding habits and everything. And that really helps explain some of the damage, why we saw damage at one area and not at the other. So that was one of the, the biggest breakthroughs I think we had um, um, moving forward. We also did a lot of work on cultural controls. You know, we found that wheat was a lot more susceptible than barley to wireworms. So if you had heavier infestations, it may be more advantageous for a farmer to put in some barley instead of spring wheat. We also started looking at summer fallow and incorporating that a lot. Farmers in this area were using continuous cropping systems. So then by incorporating summer fallow as another means we could reduce wireworm populations in the soil. And then um, growers started incorporating peas into their rotation, um, both winter peas and then chickpeas. And one of the primary reasons growers up into the Lincoln County area and some of this intermediate rainfall was 
um, started looking at peas was to utilize a product called Capture LFR. Um, that's a in-row applied insecticide, and that was to reduce wireworm populations. And we also found that that reduced wireworm populations by about 50%. It didn't eliminate wireworm populations, but we could reduce wireworm populations, maybe get them to a more manageable population. Um, so those are some of the, I, what I thought was some of the biggest breakthroughs, you know, in our education at that, at this point, you know, it was really focused on how do we incorporate these integrated approaches to help control, not necessarily control, but manage wireworms to where, to minimize their impact on, on our overall cropping systems. And it really took a lot of planning and efforts moving forward to, to put these things in, in place. During this whole time, also, we were looking at lots and lots of um, uh, seed-applied insecticide studies. Where I, over, I think, the last, since 2009 or 10, I worked with nine different companies, putting out over 100, hundreds of treatments. Just in 2020, we looked at 29 different treatments for wireworm control as a seed-applied insecticide. So, so we were also doing that on the side, along with all these other larger-scale stuff and the distribution and, and um, developing this cultural controls. Okay. You mentioned earlier um, uh, three dominant uh, wireworm species. Do you find you have to um, manage those different species, those species differently, or are they the same management uh, approaches work for all of them? No, um, it's it was interesting. You know, infiscatus happened to be, Lemonius infiscatus happened to be the most prevalent in the Pacific Northwest, but it also did the least amount of damage um, compared to Californicus. As how is related to growers is one Californicus uh, or one Californicus will do as much damage damage as two infiscatus. Okay, so if so, you have Californicus, you need to be more you vigilant. Need to be a lot more aggressive, okay. and the cruiser had no impact. You could utilize two ounces of gaucho, and you could reduce. Um, both of those species of wireworms. And then when you got into the dry, dry area, um, you get into a different species, um, and it's Lanaus sampruneus, and it too requires a little bit different manage. The two ounces of gaucho would reduce wireworm populations, but it would only reduce the neonates, the youngest of the wireworm populations, and really had no impact on the larger, more mature wireworms. That's one of the things that makes wireworms, I forgot to mention maybe early on, it makes wireworms so difficult is these things can remain a pest anywhere from two to five years in the soil, upwards of 10 years. And that's that Solanus ampruneus, the dryland species. It's in the soil for up to 10 years. So unlike most insects, you know, where they go through a quick life cycle, you know, this lifestyle, the larval stage is a very long life cycle for an insect. Yeah, that is quite long. Interesting. Yeah, they just don't want to mature. Oh. <laughs> Sounds like kids We these all days. know a couple like that, don't we, Drew? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so Dale Whaley uh, recently posted a timely topic on a new product called Teraxa insecticide. Teraxa yep. insecticide. Uh, what can you tell us about this development and what does it mean moving forward? Um, you know, I talked about, I looked at a lot of different products with different companies over many years. One of the companies I hadn't worked with until 2017 was BSF. And in the spring of 2017, they contacted me about doing a more of a long-term study, a multi-year study, looking at one of their products for wireworm control. And, 
you know, this was really my first time working with them. And so I was kind of leery, you know, I was pretty skeptical at first, especially when they wanted to do a multi-year study and their grand scheme that they were laying out and everything. I'm like, I've looked at too much wireworms and, you know, am I wasting my time? Am I wasting their time? And I wait, am I wasting the growers time? And the, the ground I was putting it on. But we established a study in 2017, and it was with a product I only know it as Berflanolide. And, you know, it looked really good the first year, but the thing that really set it apart, you know, it was the yield. Um, our check averaged 28 bushel, where we had no wireworm control, just a fungicide. The heavy rate of cruiser at 1.33 ounces, the highest legal rate labeled rate went 62 bushel um but the tracks that went average 70 bushel an acre and that was really cool to see but the thing that was really nice is coming back the subsequent year and putting wireworm traps in the ground and removing those traps um the check overall drew we averaged almost 14 wireworms per trap with the cruiser 1.33 we also averaged 13 wireworms per trap you know, no significant difference there. But with the Traxa, over those two years of doing this study, um, putting two traps per plot across this area, we only found two a total of two wireworms, and both of them were small neonates. And so wow. that was really exciting to, you know, to see. It's been a long time. I've never really pulled bait traps out of the ground that were just empty. And so that was you know, one of, the, one of my big aha moments. And, I, you know, I've mentioned in stuff that it was a game changer. And, and I, I think for the industry moving forward, I think it really will be a game changer. Um, that, that is exciting news because that's, that's been a pest that's really bothered our growers for, since you said, since Lindane went away. Yes, and it can sneak up on you at any time. Growers didn't have problems with it, and all of a sudden, boom, they have problems. You know, most growers will misdiagnose wireworm damage for a couple of years as those populations mature and, and and increase. You know, you go from, I was a little disappointed in that field. The stand wasn't quite there. The weeds. All the growers early on always focused on the weeds. You know, one farmer down by Uniontown on his winter wheat, always had severe downy brome. Couldn't figure out why. And once he figured out wireworm control, he really did a much better job with his downy brome. Rob Dewald early on, he was always having troubles with wild oats. You know, in the draw bottoms, couldn't get rid of the wild oats. Well, if you don't have much crop there, the wild oats take over. And one thing we found in our research is wireworms don't like oats, including wild oats. <laughs> and then um, Mark Shuffles, one of the other um, cooperators we had some, some the long-term study with, he was having a problem with um, trying to control Russian thistles. You know, so anytime you start decreasing your crop, that crop c competition, you know, there's always something there to fill that void. And in this case, it, it was weeds. And so it's really nice to see something that, you know, these things are clean. And, you know, even coming back, Drew, that second year, where we run a cruiser the first year and then we come back with a check the second year, we harvested seven bushel where we had a check that we had cruiser the first year, came back with no insecticide the second year. Over two years, we averaged seven bushel. Where we did that with Traxa, we averaged 68 bushel, almost 69 bushel. 
Yeah, you don't even Almost need Almost no difference to tell you than that. using tracks at two years in a row. Yeah, you don't need stats. You don't need a statistician for those numbers. Um, you know, and it's interesting. Um, I was just listening to the Wheat Growers pod or their um, one of their seminars the other day on seed care. And Syngenta is bringing a, a product to um, the marketplace. Unfortunately, it probably won't be here till 2024. Um, Panoslin, I think. And I've looked at that a little bit too, and it's going to have some of these same characteristics, I think, where, where um, you know, can reduce wireworm populations in the soil. So it's nice to see these products finally get into market. Um, we talked about it. It did get registered. did get registered on January 15th. And a, a lot of the effort on that went to the Grain Commission. Um, they pushed in for a Section 18 for it, even though they were trying to get registration. It kind of stalled. Something about all this COVID stuff and things were kind of stalling and not quite moving like they wanted to. But by simply putting in a Section 18 and forcing the issue, it really helped get the the labeling in place so we could have this this product um, available to us for the 2021 crop year. Well, it sounds like uh, exciting news for for the wheat industry. Uh, where where can people go to find more information on wireworms and and how to manage them? Well, I, I've never been shy, so my my email address is always there, errands at wsu.edu. It's pretty easy to find on any Google search or anything. And then most of our stuff, like the, um, Dale Whaley's um, summary, his timely topic is on the Small Grains website. All our stuff on how to trap wireworms and stuff, all that's on that Small Grain website. Um, one of my latest presentations um, is going to be um, available here, should be available on the Small Grains website as well. So there's a lot of great resources there. If you don't find what you're looking for there, um, give me a call and we'll, we'll figure out where we need to go. All right. Well, Aaron, you had some, some good news here for our listeners today. Thanks it's for nice sharing that with us. It's nice to finally bring good news. We always, you know, we were waiting for 2020 to get over with and some people are questioning how 2021 is rolling in, but... Wow, I like 2021, Drew. This is great for me and for farmers across eastern Washington and in Oregon. It just got um, OS, the Oregon Department of Ag approved it, approved it for Oregon as well just the other day. All right. A good way to so, start off the year. Yes. Thanks a lot, Aaron. Thank you, Drew. Appreciate it. Thanks for joining us and listening to the WSU Wheat Beat Podcast. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. If you have questions or topics you'd like to hear on future episodes, please email me at drew.lyon, that's L-Y-O-N, at wsu.edu. You can find us online at smallgrains.wsu.edu and on Facebook and Twitter at WSU Small Grains. The WSU Wheat Beat Podcast is a production of Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. I'm Drew Lyon. We'll see you next time.